You're listening to The Drew Marshall Show. And now, here's Drew and his trusty sidekick, Woodrow, but don't have a paddle. Thanks for tuning in, folks. You are listening to The Drew Marshall Show. We're streaming live at drewmarshall.ca. We're live right here in southern Ontario on uh, Joy 1250. All right, uh, moving along in our show on death, which just sounds weird, but is what it is. And I also don't like that phrase. It is what it is. It is what it is. Well, then think of something else. <laughs> that be it. It was what it was. That, yeah. Be who you is, because yes. if you is who you ain't, you ain't who you is. <laughs> Thank you very much. Here we go. You will hear another voice from this point on in the show, and the voice of this person is, uh, the voice of the name of this person is Linda. I don't know what your voice is called, Linda. <laughs> Linda is the founder of the uh, Toronto Death Cafe. Thank you for being here for this show. Thank you for having Are me. Are you feeling weird being on Yeah, radio? totally. Yeah, but you love it. Yeah, it's fine. You love it. I am thoroughly looking forward to this conversation with Stephen Jenkinson. Uh, he is a spiritual activist, which I'd like to know what that means. He's a teacher. I really don't know what that means either. He's an author and a ceremonialist. <laughs> master's degree from Harvard University in Theology and University of Toronto Social Work. Stephen Jenkinson is revolutionizing grief and dying in North America. Stephen is redefining what it means to live and die well. Uh, he has worked extensively with dying people and their families and is a former program director in a major Canadian hospital, former assistant professor in a prominent Canadian medical school, consultant to palliative care and hospice organizations, and educator and advocate in the helping professions. He is the author of Die Wise, a manifesto for sanity and soul, homecoming, the uh, haiku sessions, uh, a live recorded teaching, how it all could be, a workbook for dying people. Man, this guy's done a lot of stuff. He's done way more. I don't want to read anymore. I want to talk to him. Stephen Jenkinson, how are you, sir? <laughs> Well, I was enjoying the, the, <laughs> the recitation of my life, but uh, you could stop there, sure. I'm fine, thank you. Uh, you are in the middle of a retreat of some sort up there? You're teaching? or what Not a retreat, a oh. charge, man. A charge? Oh, nice. We're not withdrawn from anything. Nice. We've tried that for the last 30 years. Doesn't seem to be working out. <laughs> okay, when was Grief Walker uh, originally released? When it was sprung on an unsuspecting public was 2008. The National Film Board released it in uh, fall 2008. Would you say prior to that people didn't really give a holy grunt uh, as to who you were? I say subsequent to that, it hasn't changed much either. <laughs> but, uh, yes, it has. Yes, yeah, it has. But no, I think in those days it was, uh, you know, my, my purview was narrow and, you know, pretty much professional and... And my my lament was professionally uh, kind of tuned, you might say. And I thought that was my, quote, constituency, because I was still working in the business right up until around that time, the death trade, as I called it. And somewhere in there, right in that period when the film came out, I kind of grudgingly realized, or it was thrust upon me, that my real constituency, in fact, wasn't the the, the professions that are associated with the care of dying people. It was the, let's call it the end users of those professional um, skills. And my my constituency, constituency turned out to be everybody else. And I suppose since then, uh, you know, between all, all of the electronic media and so on, I guess there's a kind of fleeting notoriety that is attended to the name. And hmm. somebody let me know very recently that someone's crafted a Wikipedia page about what I'm doing, so this might probably a sign of the end times as reliable as any other. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I, I have two very important questions I actually want to start off with. The sure. first one is, have you fixed the leak in your canoe yet? Uh, which canoe, which leak is the uh, question. That's ooh, See, everything that's he smart. says is profound. <laughs> yes. <sighs> okay. I'm, just, I'm just an old rabbi, an, an unrepentant rabbi who who's just aroused more questions when he's asked something. Okay, let's keep it simpler. Sure. When was the last time you had your stick in the ice? <laughs> oh, it's been a long time, man. I don't have the gas or the wind anymore. Yeah. So I, um, I'm content to uh, remember it to some degree and to leave winter to the hardier Canadians. Why aren't you a preacher man? I mean, you know, you did the Harvard Who Divinity. Well, you know what I mean. You are officially and with some denomination. You know, have, why don't you have denominational baggage? Why aren't you uh, wearing the wearing the the, the cloth? Uh, they wouldn't have me. Yeah, I, I get that. It's it's utterly true. I mean, I went to Harvard Divinity School. That's what I went for. I was desperate to get into priesthood, and I was in my uh, de- not, what they call it devotional uh, appointment uh, interview that I had to have. Uh, not to, to qualify, I was already in, but simply to, for them to get an idea of, of who, you know, what branch of the ministry I intended to go in. I was two questions in to this interview. It was over. The first question was, who's your sponsoring congregation? And the second question was, failing that I had a, 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 sponsor, a sponsoring congregation, which I didn't, they asked me next, who, what's your denominational affiliation? And the answer was no to both. And, and the guy, he looked at me and he said, son, he said, where do you go to church? And I said, I don't go to church. Well, where did you go to church then? And I said, I didn't. He said, let me understand the situation. You proposed to go into ministry of the priesthood. You'd never been to church. I said, that's correct. And he said, well, I never, because he was Southern Baptist dude. <laughs> and I said, well, I never neither. And that was the end of my <laughs> vocation. Well, I never neither. That's I love right. it. I have been looking online at various chaplaincy positions that have opened up in different places because I often think if they if I finally do get kicked off the air what would I do next you might say when just to be safe thank you exactly and uh, well chaplaincy you know I really do uh, find that the honor in that position being invited into those situations is is invaluable it's immeasurable and uh, but while I look at those positions online, oh, chaplaincy here at this hospital, chaplaincy here or whatever, oh, boy, they want a master of divinity. No, you know, they want to uh, they want to know that you're part of a congregation. You know, they want all the sort of the labels. And I don't have that stuff either, man. Mm. You and I are just streetwalkers. You better stick with the radio. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll do that. Because apparently you don't need any of that stuff to be on the radio. No, apparently not. No education whatsoever. I, I asked Larry King a while ago if he was afraid of of death yeah. and he said you bet your ass i am yeah um, and i'm quoting so i can i guess i can get away with saying that word uh, because it's in a quote sure um are you afraid of death um well it's i think it's a more nuanced thing than yes or no to be honest in my case i've been around it a long time the occupational hazard of that is that you could fancy yourself to be somehow either used to it or inured to it or under-impressed or underwhelmed by it. But I'm none of those things. I assure you, I'm, I'm more probably sensitized to it. Uh, and what I'm trying to do, I guess, is allow the rest of my days to be informed by the sensitivity. That doesn't have to include fear. Uh, but the opposite of fear is not there either, some kind of you know, heroic um, uh, 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 neutrality about it all. The truth for me is, I find life really habit-forming, you know? 
and it's it, it's it, even when it turns to shit, that's a quote from me. Still, in all, it's a very compelling, especially when you really know what the alternatives are. So, uh, you know, loving being alive shouldn't really translate as being afraid to die. I don't think. Right. But I don't welcome it. You know, I don't I don't hanker after it. I don't feel a particular kind of assured kinship with it that kind of declaws and defangs it and turns it into a lap dog that I can stroke when it suits me. I mean, it's a radical mystery that's a human-scaled mystery, but for all of that, so deeply unfamiliar in a time like ours that it's a very steep learning, I think. And maybe that's what, you know, the latter half of your life at least could be, is that you don't come to your dying as a kind of amateur, you know, and, and I think the fear thing could well serve maintaining your amateur status without you intending to do it. Because fear's not, it's not knowing, right? It's not right. learning. It's not, a, it's not a surrogate for knowing either. It's, uh, maybe it's making sure you don't have to, kind of keeping arm's length from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I really want to hunker down into the fear conversation, but I want to introduce you again to uh, my good friend, Linda Stewart. Linda, you're listening to Stephen, and your brain is going bonkers. <laughs> what, are, what are you thinking? Oh, I'm thinking so much, uh, Stephen. It's great to talk to you. Hi, Linda. Um, yeah, you just have poetry just flows out of you. Oh, so. stop sucking it, up to the guests. No, gas. I really, it's true. <laughs> I, I, Nothing I, wrong with sucking up to the guests. I, I, it sometimes <laughs> takes me a moment or two to, uh, to fully digest what you say. So um, I've read that you said that we have a moral obligation to die well, to die wise, and that dying people deserve help to die. And I wondered what advice you could give to people right now who are walking with someone who's dying? Well, you know, I honestly, and I'm not quibbling here, but I'm not a really purveyor of advice. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not persuaded that that's even a legitimate um, endeavor. What I, I guess and what I'm trying to do, certainly that Die Wise book was an effort to do it, is to, is to be troubled aloud uh, about, the, about the status quo, let's say. And... Um, that doesn't allow time for dispensing, you know, five steps, 12 stages, and all of that other good bromide stuff that's basically a coping strategy for what you refuse to learn about. Mm -hmm. So I'm not doing that. I think, if anything, for example, the statement, uh, you know, dying wise is a, is a moral obligation uh, that, that, um, that makes a claim on everyone. That doesn't mean everyone does it. So, so what does that mean? How is it a moral obligation? Basically, it comes from this. As many deaths as I attended, easily 90% of them were devastatingly bad by any sane measure of dying and dying well and dying badly. And what they all had in common, uh, there's only a few things they had in common. One of them was that the consequences of this bad dying did not end with the dying person's breath. That the consequences, if anything, seemed actually to multiply subsequent to the death, the actual moment of death and beyond. And they become these kind of heroic or cautionary tales that people tell each other uh, in times when they see death again. And they're all warning us away from it. This, the consequence of dying badly, you cannot contain by stopping breathing. That's, that's principally what turns it, I think, into a moral obligation to pursue wisdom. I could say to you this, you know, the book, I'm often introduced as the guy who wrote a book called Die Wisely, 
and I don't know why with a two-word title they can screw it up, but but it happens, <laughs> right? And so, but here's the nature of the misapprehension. When you say die wisely, the word wisely refers to manner of dying. You might think that's the book I wrote, but it isn't. Because the idea that you can die wisely, no matter how you've lived before that moment, is at the very best magical thinking. At worst, it's deeply socially, morally, and spiritually irresponsible to imagine that any kind of life you live does not, does not um, diminish your chances for, this, for a wise dying. What I'm saying is, when I call it die wise, the word wise refers to you, the dying person. It doesn't refer to your manner of dying, which is to say, it's 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 in sort of it it bears heavily upon us to realize that our living is just as the Dalai Lama has said many times, is a, a kind of proper dress rehearsal for dying. And the amazing thing is, it ain't a drag to see it this way. It doesn't take the fun out of things. If anything, what it does is it underwrites how magical and magisterial it is to be alive because it's a time-sensitive proposition. And that's what the alertness about dying gives you the opportunity to live. This kind of a stand-and-deliver order for your days. That's what the alertness to dying, properly understood and properly culturally practiced and endorsed, can be. That's kind of what I'm on about. Wow. Um, so what are we, seven minutes into, into this interview and I've already got a headache? Good night. No, but you, I mean, you, you know, you know, you're a great communicator and your, your choice of words are very intentional and you drop these nuggets that have to be unpacked and it's a pain to have to think sometimes. I guess, I guess it is. Yeah. Well, you know, you, I could always give you somebody else's number to call for the, rest <laughs> of the interview and it doesn't have to be like this. Oh, it doesn't have to be like this. What are you afraid of and... And I think there's a correlation between this question and the next. What are you afraid of? And what void do you have inside of you? <laughs> what kind of a show is this? <laughs> what is this, like, kind of spiritual Dear Abby? What, <laughs> what, an, what an odd vector to... Well, because, because I have listened to you, and I've watched you, and I've read you, and I know there's a correlation between death and fear and between fear and whatever kind of void you have in your soul as a person whatever you know we all all of us have stuff that's missing all of us have fear triggers and quite oftentimes our fear triggers are associated with whatever void is there whether we weren't loved by mom or dad or we were whatever i don't know so so your void and your fear first of all is there a correlation between those two or am i just out to lunch (laughs) well well, there might not be, and it might not be a sign that you're out to lunch, but who knows? <laughs> but anyway, you can have a show about you another time. This is about me. Yes. Right yeah, okay, good. So, well, okay, I'll try to answer the terms that you've asked it in. Um, the idea of void, uh, that's the first thing. You know, the, the principal haunting of the Western mind and the Western soul, I think, gathers around this possibility of non-existence. We imagine that this has been the the blight of every person who's ever spoken a word from the beginning of time. And I assure you this is not even true today in other places in the world. That there are people's languages who could never conjure the concept of non-existence, non-being, oblivion, disappearing without a trace, Hmm. 
You see where we're headed towards death now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, there's people whose understanding of dying is, is exquisitely a reunion with all of those people who've died before them. Their understanding of heaven, in other words, would be just like this, with finally enough to eat on a regular basis, and the people on either side of me being the people I've missed uh, who died before me. That would be their constituent, uh, that's the heaven that they, not, that they don't seek, they anticipate. It's not a meritocracy, you see. You don't have to be good enough to get in. You just had to be lucky enough to be born into that culture with that kind of linguistic framing about what your life means. I was born into a place and time that believes utterly in the possibility of disappearing without a trace and actually foist that upon young people in the name of educating them. I mean, I was, uh, I'll give you a, a quick uh, an, a, idea of what this looks like when it happens. I write a composition when I'm about nine years old in class. I get a mark back, A minus. She gives me an A because she said, very good use of the first person, you know, narrative, and you told the story, and, and, and uh, it's very consistently done. Halfway through the story, you die. The problem is, you keep telling the story in the first person after you're dead. Now, the story should have ended right there, and that's why you get a minus. <laughs> Sounds like a grammar lesson, or does it? No, of course it isn't. It's a lesson in non-existence, you see. And, and I, I swear to you, this is what I saw amongst dying people more than any other single dread was what was to become of them after they died. And they realized that, that functionally speaking, the disposition of the dead among us, what becomes of us after we die, is as much in the hands of the living as it is anywhere else. And you, you know, this is no news to anyone listening, <clears throat> that the spirit of the West is towards rehabilitation and healing and recovery and getting on with your life. And this is code for leaving the dead behind. Now, it absolutely is. <laughs> and, and it's a recipe for being okay. You see, the loss of our dead has become a recipe for personal healing. And this is a devastating realization for people who are on their deathbed, because they realize when it was their turn, this is exactly what they did. And they're now about to join this this caravan of misery headed towards oblivion, heading out of town, called dying in the West. Okay. Um, That's half your question. I yeah. can do the other half, or are we done? No, no, no. I, I Do it, man. Do it. Okay, I'll try. So, <clears throat> so non-existence, then, is not so much a feared thing as it is a guarantee unless something changes radically. So you can see why people scramble in the, in the late going for a kind of belief system that somehow might yank them back from the edge, or to kind of go to all manner of kind of bucket list style extremes to get their licks in while they can, because it's now or nothing, baby. And um, this is not my personal fear as, as something I personally walk around with haunted by, but man, I tell you this, what good, what does your green lawn mean in a drought when all around you is brown and parched. And so by the same token, while I may not be personally visited by this horror show, I am in the presence of many, many people who are. And so I am not in that sense free or reassured or snickering in the corner. Poor suckers, you know, they don't get it. Quite the contrary. My, my life in the present and my work 
is largely, you could say, almost detonated by this uh, this trauma uh, that um, that haunts many many people that I end up with. You know, in large groups and you know, in groups of two or three or four or five people as well. And so I'm I'm a kind of I'm um. um my sorrow is, is, in that regard, is not principally my own. It's not personal. And that's why I was joking with you about the thrust of the question, because mm-hmm. it really doesn't go to a personal void or a personal fear. But what I'm saying is I think the more personal things become, the less profound they are. So people have told me that I'm an autodidactic iconoclast, but I contrast that to you, and you are the captain of the ship. You are my captain. Sure. When I ask questions of you, when I hear people ask questions of you, mm. you have this ability to deconstruct and contrast and push back, even with the framing of the questions. Yeah. Have you always been a pain like that? <laughs> uh, I, I learned it partly by being on the, on the stand. Uh, frank, literally, I was on the stand as an expert witness, although expert in what was never really determined, but I was there frequently. And from there and other places, I learned that one of the principal art forms uh, in a dynamic like we're in now mm. is that what one does is answer the question that should have been asked. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose that's what I'm trying to do. No, well, that, and that's why, that's, to be honest, that's why I kind of, you know, dug you. I mean, when I first saw your picture and stuff, I, I said this on air earlier, so you're going to hate me for this, but I'm telling you straight up. Okay. I said, ah, oh, here's another white guy trying to be an Indian. Yeah. And um, and then and then you talked and you you leaked out stuff that resonates or resonated uh strongly with with my guts uh-huh. and i forgot about your exterior after that uh-huh. so thank you well you know wh- <coughs> white guy's hair grows <laughs> so i don't know if that's news or what but you know you're allowed to have long hair and still be a white guy yeah without trying to be somebody else <laughs> Right. Uh, in the days before scissors, this is what we look like. <laughs> I'm just a throwback, man. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's just your old ancestral past coming to haunt you. That's I'd appreciate me. if we wouldn't talk about a hair, please. Okay. okay. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I've touched a, a tender moment. It's a tender, tender spot there. Okay. Uh, Linda? It's very tender in this room right now. Actually. There's so <laughs> many bald there. guys in this room right now. <laughs> Okay, Stephen, I'm not going to ask you a question. I'm just going to okay. I'm going to tell you something. I had a All little right. bit I had a little bit of a an epiphany. Um, you know, I I'm not maybe I'm not old enough yet to be afraid of of death, but for myself I'm not. I I don't I don't seem to have that fear at this point. Mm-hmm. But I'm really afraid of how I'm going to feel when I lose the people that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm afraid of of grief and yeah. In preparing for chatting with you today, I read something that you wrote about grief being the human angel in the world. And if you wrestle with an angel, mm. you will grow muscle. Right. And for me, that was, I had a bit of an internal shift, I think, in the way that I look at it, in that I try to live my life uh, to love fully and live fully. And, and um, you know, I wear my heart on my sleeve and, and it, it works for me. And maybe looking at grief um, in a different way, and that you know, just open myself up to it, and and let it come in, and that down the road my life can be even fuller and richer because of that. So I want to thank you for that because I I feel a little better a little better prepared. I s- not I still don't want 
anybody I love to die. So mom and dad, um, don't, don't, don't die. <laughs> but uh, I feel like I'm in a, in a little bit of a better position. But but one, one question that I do have to you, for hey, you. You said you weren't going to ask him a question. Okay, I am. I'm going to just ask him this one. So as, as a member of the... I'm involved in the uh, in in the death care industry, mm. and I would imagine there's probably a lot of people listening today who also are. And there's a couple terms that are used a lot in the industry that I I take issue with, and I wondered what your thoughts were. Particularly one uh, being closure. Oh yeah, uh, that is used so often. Let's have a funeral so we can have closure. Mm-hmm. Um, or open casket so we can have closure. Yeah, yeah. and for me, a, a funeral has always been. The whole ceremony, the whole, all of the rituals involved with a funeral have always been about opening, not so much closing. So I wondered what if you thought maybe that's just another another way that we run away from these from these fears, feelings of, uh, of fear, and when so, it comes to grief and death. So Stephen, is closure a stupid word? <laughs> you guys, you guys have these serial questions. You, you <laughs> gang up on each, you with each other and you try to browbeat the dude on the phone. <laughs> Well, okay, so I'll go back to something you said earlier, which hopefully answers the question you've just asked now that you didn't intend to, or promise not to ask. <laughs> and it goes like, you use the word lose as a synonym for die. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is an enormous thing. You know, it's very common. It, sure, it certainly is not you, as you know. But, but people use this word all the time as if it were a synonym. Now, just imagine this. It is not required that you lose someone as a consequence of them dying. These are not synonyms at all. This is a collapse, a a kind of collapse of the imagination in the face of no culturally endorsed deep education of the soul about what dying actually asks of us and the consequences thereof. You know, have you ever lost your car keys? Somebody in that studio has lost your car keys, I can tell from here. And you remember how you felt about yourself then? But it doesn't, you're not saying the car keys jumped off my table, ran out the door, and fell down the sewer. You don't say that. You're not, you think you're describing the keys when you say, I lost my keys, but you're actually describing what you did. Same with your wallet. Same with your dead father. When you say, I lost my father, you are literally telling us what you did to him. Mm. You're not telling us what he did to you. Mm-hmm. Okay? And nobody is lost as a consequence of dying particularly in cultures that are intact, high-functioning, spiritually intact, spiritually informed, and practicing, okay? This synonym that dying means losing, this is a sign of a kind of moral and mythological imagination in total freefall, totally removed and withdrawn from the realities of life, pining after some childhood intactness, that adults have no right or reason to pine after. And so losing is not required, you see. What it means is learning how to have your dead among you. Mm. How do you learn how to do this in a place that basically forbids it under pain of some kind of psychiatric examination? And the answer is you practice with your old people. Mm. What the elders among us are is our opportunity to have endings present, not absent. And it's literally dying among us. That's what elders are. It's time having its way with us in a more pronounced fashion and gives the rest of us an opportunity to learn how to have them in our midst. 
You look around now, you see we're no good at that at all. We're making these old folks' homes to get them away from us so we can visit them on the weekend and feel better about you know being responsible because they're being well cared for. But they're not being well cared for by us. This is why we have two jobs. This is what's going on these days. It's not a sign that we're good with aging, and palliative care is not a sign that we're good with death either. So you practice with dying people to learn how to have limits in your midst, because it's a skill to have elders in your midst, to seek, to seek them out, to turn towards them as if they're honored people, not failed people, you see. Dying people, you know, basically we have to come to them in the same fashion, and if we do, the likelihood is that our, our way of living with dead folks will, will carry some of that learning with it. And losing is simply not part of the story, inherently. Grief is not a feeling. Grief is what you do. do, Grief is a skill. The twin of grief Mm -hmm. is the skill of life. The skill of life is uh, being to praise and and love love. Do one authentically, and the other one will be there. Mm. Final question for you. Well, first of all, I got to, you know, when you and I first talked on the phone, you know, I said, oh, it's going to be a 25-minute interview. And I'm like, eh, that's not really long enough to, yeah, well, you know, those are kind of long interviews in radio. The Yeah, well, that's why I don't do interviews in radio, because they're usually too short. Dude, we could have uh, talked a long time. We could have talked well, a long time. I told you. <laughs> um, my final question to you, Alice Cooper told me once that Groucho Marx's epitaph is... On his tombstone, for those of you who don't know what an epitaph is. I told you I wasn't feeling good or something like that. Yes, that's right. I told you I was sick. That's right. right. (laughs) Nice. What's yours going to (laughs) be? He proceeded otherwise. Nice. I mean, I won't have much to say about it, but if anybody's asking or listening in who's in that trade, I wouldn't mind that. He proceeded otherwise. (laughs) Or how about I forgot to fix the leak in the canoe? Yeah. <laughs> no, I can I can swim a little bit. <laughs> no, it's really you know I I think it's what it's down to for me now. I'm 61, no, and I've pretty much seen what's there to see as far as novelty goes. So I have some other assignment, and it's not to find new stuff. My assignment seems to be more or less self-appointed as it is to uh, to to um, to imagine that it could be otherwise. And to proceed minus permission, minus being asked to do so. And, you know, you, as a Canadian, you run the risk of being accused of arrogance because, uh, because you've simply decided otherwise. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they aim at your kneecaps. That's this country in a nutshell, no? <laughs> and uh, who does he think he is? Well, give me five minutes, I'll tell you. But that's, it's a rhetorical question, of course. So, <laughs> so my job seems to be to, to be sorrowed about what is not mandatory among us but what does an awful good imitation of the way it is and one of the ways you learn that it ain't like this is just get your ass out your own door travel a little bit and be absolutely stupefied to end up in places where dying is considered a legitimate consequence of being uh, born Hmm. it's not the booby prize for not getting your way or not eating enough you know, tofu or something. It's it's a legitimate outcome of life, and it's to be learned and practiced. It's not. It's you're not the victim of your dying any more than you're victim of your creation. You see, and it's a celebratory proposition that's rooted in grief. It's not rooted in giddiness, and grief underwrites your capacity to love being alive. But this is how. 
by glimpsing the end of everything you hold dear, your capacity to really fall in love with it is ignited. Until then, you're basically either approving of it when it works out well, retreating from it when it doesn't, negotiating your relationship with the deal, and trying to extend your days. <laughs> is that okay? I, I, I don't even know how to respond. You, I used to live in Australia, <clears throat> and they have this phrase, gobsmacked, and, yes. I, and I'm sitting here listening to you attack. He had, he had me a booby. Yeah, yeah. As soon as you said booby, that was, that was all over that. Listen, gobsmacked is not good for radio, man. you got to do something about it. I know, I know. Stephen Jenkinson is the gentleman we've been speaking with, and his website is orphanwisdom.com. I just got a text from someone that says, uh, how are you not bawling through this interview? Man, he's got some crazy, beautiful insight about death and, more importantly, life. Mm. Stephen, thank you very much, and I would like to spend more time with you on my show in the future should you um, give me permission to do that well you know what this is a kind of an unlikely honor of sorts because the way it started i thought what what, what is this the gong show on the what 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 have i got myself into here these guys are in you know making in jokes and nudging each other in the ribs and am i even going to fit in here and and what's death got to do with any of this and then i realized these guys are basically brothers from another planet yeah so I, I'd say if we don't do this again, it'd be, it'd be bordering on the criminal. So you call me up. I'm yours, man. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. And uh, Linda, again, thank you for being part of this as well. Thank you. Yes, indeed, Linda. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care, man. Folks, Stephen Jenkinson on the Drew Marshall Show. That was a head spin. You know what the, that reminded me of was my conversation with Patch Adams. Yes. Who we tried to get on the show today as well, but he was booked. So, wow. Wow. So much to unpack. A very short break on our show. When we come back... We're going to talk about the Death Cafe. Linda Stewart is the founder of the Toronto Death Cafe. And John Underwood is the founder of Death Cafe, period. And we're going to give, get him on the phone all the way from Jolly England. Jolly England? Who says is that? Who says is? Says is? <laughs> Stephen's got me all befuddled, Yeah, you're man. still stuck on booby. <laughs>